What's up guys, welcome back to the MMA meeting, Let's Talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys are having as much enjoyment as possible. Now, we all heard the news, UFC 249 is officially postponed, they don't want to use those words pretty carefully, not to say that it was cancelled, it's going to be moved down later on, now we don't know when that's going to be, but ultimately, it was Mickey Mouse that gave the command, he said, Baldy, go home. Dana White kind of has to agree with it. You know, they are partners. Disney and ESPN are partners with the UFC, and they are the major provider for the fights. Now, Dana White has said that he's going to take care of everybody. He's going to take care of his employees. They're not going to get fired. He said he's going to reward the fighters that try to come in on short notice, such as Justin Gaethje. So he's probably going to get paid some favors. And the fact that he stepped up on short notice, it's going to stay well with the UFC, especially for his next fight. So if he wants Conor McGregor or if he wants Tony Ferguson or Habib later, who knows what's going to happen. I'm pretty sure they're going to give him that, right, for doing this for them. That's usually how the UFC operates. And now I see two camps. It's crazy because MMA has divided almost in two sides. I don't know which side is bigger. But one side doesn't want the fights to happen. One side doesn't want the UFC to continue until everything starts to ease itself regarding the coronavirus situation. And then there's the other side that just wants the fights to happen and they are parading praising Dana White for his efforts. First of all, you have to give Dana some kind of respect. He is working harder than probably ever before. During this situation too, his work ethic is respectable. If you tell him he can't do something, he's gonna go and try to prove you wrong every single time, and that's how he's always been. Back when he had hair, he was the same guy, you know? If the UFC and Dana White did not have the same mindset, the organization and MMA entirely would not be where it's at today. So it doesn't surprise me they try to go through with the whole thing. And personally, I don't know what to say about the whole thing. I never want to be in this situation to tell people what they ought to do. I really feel uncomfortable about that whole thing when other people do it. It's always very easy to talk about that sort of thing. It's very easy to tell people what they have to do from your perspective, but your perspective may not come from the same elevation as other people. Here's a big thing, man, and it's the main thing that concerned me about all of this, and that is the fighters, pretty much. I'm always looking out for the fighters, worried when something happens to them that doesn't allow them to earn a living, doesn't allow them to fight. There are definitely fighters right now, because of the inconceivable future, they don't know when they're going to be fighting, and because of that, they don't know when they're going to get paid, and they don't know when They can make a living, right? Jobs are harder to get than ever before now. There's a logjam of applications for all the limited available jobs. So what are they going to do? You know, I personally know a lot of people, not just in MMA, but there are people who were struggling before this whole virus broke out, right? Before there was a stay-at-home thing and before jobs are closing. Now it's going to be much worse and fighters are especially going to be hurt by all this because there are many fighters, even in the UFC, let alone outside of it, even in the UFC, there are fighters who are living not only fight by fight, but there are many who don't even own their own home. There are many that are couch hopping, sleeping on friends' couches, sleeping on the mats, sleeping in their cars. How many times do you hear that story? Roy McDonald and Jorge Mazdal used to live in their car and just travel to gyms trying to make it as a fighter, right? They make all these sacrifices to one day be that professional, high-level, well-paid, famous fighter where their future is set, right? Look at Jose Aldo. Josie Aldo was living on the gym mats, right? He used to hear gunshots outside all the time. And the thing is now, they don't have a way to get paid. Those fighters who are in that phase right now where they're trying to make it, try to get their name out there, and now this whole situation slaps them in the face, everything closes down, the gyms close down, and people want the fights to stop, people want the companies to stop, and they need to make some kind of living. I understand the fighters that were on UFC 249, they're probably going to get compensated in some way, or by Dana White's words, it's going to get postponed. So I don't know if they're going to get paid. Like UFC paid the fighters that were going to fight in London, but those aren't the fighters to be majorly concerned for. It's really the fighters that haven't even negotiated for a fight yet. The fighters with contracted bouts are one part of the problem, but there's an entirely other part. Majority of the fighters don't even have fights, and they don't even know when they can get them. What about the fighters that have been injured, and they're trying to come back and make something out of it? All the losses that they took because of some unfortunate circumstances, they don't have a way to do anything now, and we don't even know for how long. It could be two months, five months, one whole year. When is everything going to open up again? We have no idea. So it can really be devastating to many fighters. And that's why I couldn't say what was right or wrong. Doing UFC 249 was right or if it was wrong. Because it depends what angle you look at it. It depends what kind of ground you're standing on. right? If you're taking that moral high ground, it's very easy to tell people looking down on the masses and telling them what they ought to do. But if you're actually in the trenches and you're really on 
leveled ground, you start to see everything a lot more realistic. That alone is hard for me to even say what is right or wrong. Because there's fighters who are great where they are, and there's fighters where that will devastate them beyond potentially what the virus will do to them. So I will say what the UFC is doing is reckless by definition, but it isn't certainly being harmful. Being reckless and being harmful are two different things. One is an exaggeration of the other, or one's a led down path from the other. And here's the thing, the UFC carrying on their fights does not surprise me at all. This is the UFC's nature. This is Dana White's nature. Always go against the grain. Always go against what the mainstream is trying to tell them what they have to be doing. They always want to lead and show everybody how it's done. If they didn't have that mindset before, the UFC wouldn't be where it's at today. It's just a different mentality that the UFC executives and Dana White has. If you tell them they can't do something, Dana White has said this recently, if you tell him he can't do something, he's going to go and try to prove you wrong. And usually, through this reckless nature, it has benefited them and the organization. It usually has. So who knows, you know? And now I know it could sound like I'm saying that I wanted the fights to happen. And that could be risky. Not necessarily. I'm just giving out the other side of the argument here because you hear a lot about, you know, fights should be stopped, the company should be stopped, but I'm trying to give out the counter argument to that or just the other perspective. I understand having the fights is a risk. Things can turn out for the worse. Everybody can be infected in the arena. Actually, the worst part of it is if one person gets infected, potentially everybody can get infected, right? You only need one person. So I completely understand the whole side of the argument. And that is why I'm saying, you know, it possibly can be right. It can be a right decision to make. But then you look at the other side and see how it can even permanently destroy people's careers and destroy their lives. Can you say it's the right thing to do then? You know, so it's hard to really say unless you're like some expert who really knows all the information, all the details, because these days it's really hard to find out what's the right kind of information. But I guess on to the next one. You got to look at optimistically. Hopefully things come back quick. Fights come back soon. Fighters can compete soon. Hopefully Tony versus Habib is going to happen probably in September or something. For those who don't know, Habib is not going to be fighting in the summer. I know a lot of people are calling for, you know, June and July. Habib is not going to fight in June or July. He never does because of Ramadan. So September, August, maybe even October or November, that's probably when we're going to see Habib fight. And hopefully it's against Tony Ferguson. Because Tony stayed on the card, he did the UFC a favor. Even questioning fighting Justin Gaethje at first, he went through with it all. So hopefully, you know, the UFC does right and gives him that title shot because he did them kind of a favor as well. But yeah, maybe this is all for the better. Just hopefully everything runs back to the way it was. Hopefully Tony fights Khabib. Hopefully Justin Gaethje versus Conor McGregor. And hopefully that even comes together on the same card. Here's the other big thing, man. Look how many fights are getting postponed. Are we going to have like 50 fights on one card? Like, what's going to happen here? Is everything just going to get pushed back? Or are we going to really stack every single card? I mean, fight night cards are going to look like pay-per-view cards at this point. So that's actually going to be pretty exciting. That might actually be something to look forward to. You know, maybe some great thing that came out of all of this, you know? What if we get Tony Ferguson versus Habib, Justin Gaethje versus Conor McGregor, uh, but then again, Conor probably won't fight as a co-main event to Habib. You know, we still get Francis Agano versus Rosenstrike. Let's throw in Colby Covington versus Tyron Woodley on the same card. Let's put like Yoel Romero versus Kelvin Gastelum or something. Robert Whitaker put him on the card. Like you can stack cards at this point, right? A lot of you guys were arguing against fights happening all the time. This is probably your dream, right? This is probably the dream. There's many fights to put together in such a short amount of time. Cards are going to be stacked to the brim, man, and I can't wait for that. And now regarding Tony Ferguson, because there was this whole question as to why is Tony fighting Justin Gaethje? Why did he go about this? And it possibly can tie into the inconceivable future from the decision to close down the fights. And that is Tony Ferguson probably didn't know the next time he was going to get paid. Think about the little amount of money he has been making his entire career. You probably think Tony's been making a lot, right? As I did as well until I looked at his earnings. And it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Imagine a fighter at Tony's level making under $200,000 to show and win. Man, that's probably even more devastating news than anything else that happened this week. At the end of the day, it was very understandable why Tony Ferguson took the fight with Justin Gaethje. He hasn't fought in almost a year. He didn't make much money out of that fight. He made $235,000 against Donald Cerrone. $160,000 to show, $10,000 to win. He's only making $170,000 without the fight night bonus or anything like that. Man, you gotta fire your manager. Open that spot up. There's a lot of people that want jobs. What? Justin Gaethje makes more money than him. In Justin Gaethje's last fight against Cerrone, he made $130,000 to show and $130,000 to win. Yes, Tony makes more money to show 
but he only made $10,000 to win. So winning a fight, Gaethje makes much more than Tony Ferguson, which is crazy. I wonder who else. Does Rose Namajunas make more? Yeah, even Rose does. I mean, if you count win and show money. That's crazy, man. Tony, for every single fight, should not make less than $500,000. That's crazy. He's making less than two hundred. So think about that. He's making less than 200000 without his fight night bonus and Reebok. He goes nearly a year without fighting, and he's just going to take it off, right? He's just not going to take the fight. He has to pay a bunch of taxes, and he has to pay the training camp. He actually has to pay two training camps now because of the UFC 249 one. Pay his manager, sparring partners, everything. He's the head coach. People forget about that. He's his own head coach. So his expenses are probably higher than your normal fighter. So Tony's not really bringing home that much money at the end of the day that he can save up from his $235,000 last time. And he didn't get pay-per-view points then. Here against Justin Gaethje, he was fighting on his contract that he had for Habib. And I guarantee that pay was higher than ever before. He was making more money now than ever before in his entire career. I speculate he was going to make at least $500,000, possibly even pay-per-view bonus, especially being the A-side of the main event after Habib wasn't able to fight. So you can't really fault him for taking a fight with Justin Gaethje. And now another thing people were concerned about was the placement of Francis Ngannou versus Jarzino Rosenstrike compared to like Greg Hardy or something like that, right? And this is still relevant to talk about because the card is just going to be moved. Ngannou versus Rosenstrike still might headline the prelims when this card takes place again because it's a marketable strategy. Now, here's the thing. It's an argument that Uriah Faber made a long time ago, and he is right. And I think Earl Hawani also made the same argument, and that is, it is better to be the headliner on the prelims than to be on the main card. If you're not the co-main event or the main event, you're really not watched by a lot of the casual fans. But there are more viewers watching the headline of the prelims than watching like the third fight, fourth fight on the main card. There could be anywhere from like 800,000 to 2 million people watching the prelims. And the pay-per-view buys is mostly going to be somewhere around 200,000, 300,000, I'll give it. And the prelims are also on ESPN. So ESPN is going to be playing Engano versus Rosenstrike and covering that fight for days afterward, right? Especially if something crazy happens. If some crazy knockout happens, some highlight reel knockout of the year situation, you best believe ESPN is going to be replaying that over and over again. Now, if it's a pay-per-view fight and there's a knockout that happened there, it's usually going to take like a week or something after, right? It's going to take a while until they start showing that, right? This is why Uriah Faber always wanted to be the headline in the prelims if he wasn't going to be the main event of the entire card. There's more exposure, more eyes on him. And because of that, his career can exponentiate, you know what I'm saying? So, that's a good thing for Francis Ngannou. There's going to be a lot of casual fans that are going to be watching ESPN. It's free. There's going to be a lot of people watching his fight with Rosenstrike. And again, it's the only sports event pretty much happening. You call WWE a sport. Do I really want to get in that whole thing? I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of people watching the prelims. A lot of people. So I'll actually say it's a smart move. Having a fight on the main card is not really that prestigious unless you're like the co-main event or main event. It's only prestigious somewhat to the hardcore fans. But here's the thing. The hardcore fans are going to watch all of it. They're going to watch every fight, so it doesn't really matter. It's about the casual fans at the end of the day. The fight placements is for the casual fans. It's not really for the hardcores. But in other news, which might even be canceled, we have no idea. There's no word of it yet. UFC 250. Jose Aldo is also out of his fight with Henry Cejudo, and there is a replacement. Dominic Cruz is going to be fighting Henry Cejudo at UFC 250. I don't know why Jose Aldo's out of the card. I think because he's trapped in Brazil. But either way, man, this might be some kind of karma because Jose Aldo did not deserve a title shot against Henry Cejudo. There are multiple contenders lined up for Cejudo who far greater merit that opportunity. But does Dominic Cruz merit it over also these contenders? I don't think so. It looks like they're just looking for the big money fight and they're also listening to Henry Cejudo because Cejudo called out Jose Aldo and they gave him it. He's also been calling out Dominic Cruz who is the greatest bantamweight of all time and they're giving him this one. So it seems like Cejudo has a lot of power or a lot of influence as to who he's going to be fighting. But I will say that Dominic Cruz does deserve a title shot more than Jose Aldo does even now. I know he hasn't fought in like three years or whatever it's been since UFC 207 when he lost to Cody Garbrandt. And he has been inactive, but that was a title fight. And he has wins in the bantamweight division. Jose Aldo lost to the number one contender, not a champion, and he's never had a win in the bantamweight division. Jose Aldo should get a win at least in this division, right? And he's coming off another loss from featherweight, goes and loses to Marlon Moraes, and then gets a title shot, which is very weird. There's a lot of guys in line. I personally would like to see Aljamain Sterling or Petra Jan or whoever it is, but... Who knows if they're all trapped? Who knows what's going on? Seems like Dominic Cruz is ready. Seems like Dominic Cruz is free to fight. 
And it should be a really good fight. Regardless, it should be a very interesting, stylistic matchup. Now, Dominic Cruz's career has been pretty much an anomaly. He only has six fights in the UFC total. Like, you know about Dominic Cruz, right? He's been this long-time champion. This guy who's been fighting for over a decade. He's fought Uriah Faber a few times, even back in the day, he fought WEC in the early days. But he only has six fights in the UFC. His entire UFC career is about as active as one year for Israel Adesanya. That's crazy. Dominic Cruz made his UFC debut before women were introduced in the UFC. This was 2011. 2011. This is two years before GSP went on the hiatus. This is before Tony Ferguson lost. Is this even before Tony Ferguson made his debut? No, Tony Ferguson made his debut a month prior to Dominic Cruz making his debut. That's a long time ago, man. We're talking about Tony Ferguson who just won the Ultimate Fighter. And this is before Habib fought in the UFC. But look at his competition in the UFC. His first fight was Uriah Faber. Goes and beats him to defense the belt, which he was gifted because he was a WEC champion. He goes and fights Demetrius Johnson and beats him as well. Gets injured, vacates the belt. He was going to fight Henan Barrow. Comes back three years later and fights Takeo Mizugaki. And people forget about Takeo Mizugaki at that day. People just remember him as some, like, journeyman. But Takeo back then was an actual threat. He was talked about as the next contender to the title. He was one of the running contenders who were just stacking wins, right? He was on a five-win streak. He's fought the who's who of the bantamweight division. Dominic Cruz comes back and destroys his career. He was never the same after his Cruz fight. And that's kind of crazy because Dominic Cruz was known as pound for pound, the weakest puncher out of all the champions. Pound for pound. And he goes and knocks out Takei Mizugaki in one minute and one second of the fight craziness right crazy guys never been the same again and then he gets injured again comes back about a year and a half later to fight tj dillashaw and beats him in a controversial fight very close fight even still impressive the way he was able to do that from back-to-back layoffs goes and fights Ryan faber for the third time in his career and dominates him and then fights a tamed cody garbrandt which you can even say is one of the best bantamweights in the world if it's a tamed cody garbrandt very hard guy to beat. Uriah Faber twice, Demetrius Johnson, Takei Mizugaki, TJ Dillashaw, and tamed Cody Garbrandt. That's a list of fighters, man. That's some real high-level competition right there. And it's a big legacy moment for Henry Cejudo. If he can go and beat someone like Dominic Cruz, even though Cruz is coming off about a three-and-a-half-year layoff, which is actually the longest layoff of his career, he has another all-time great under his belt. So he would go and beat the greatest flyweight of all time and two of the greatest bantamweights of all time in his last four fights. Ultimately, I do favor Henry Sudo because of the circumstances. I understand Dominic Cruz is really good at shaking off ring rust, but this is a different level of a fight, man. This is a real powerful guy with impeccable wrestling, far greater than Cody Garbrandt. And Garbrandt was able to take down Dominic Cruz. He's faster as well. If you look at Cruz's fight with Demetrius Johnson, Johnson was beating him on the feet. It was the wrestling and the strength of Dominic Cruz that Johnson couldn't handle. When it came to striking and moving around and the speed advantage of Demetrius Johnson, he was just having his way with Cruz, pretty much. He's not going to be able to wrestle with Henry Cejudo. So, I don't know, man. Striking with Cejudo with that long of a layoff, and he's so far behind the game when it comes to advancing his skills and competing, it's going to be a tough fight for Cruz. And now let's get right to the questions. The YouTube question with the most likes goes to Bilal Osman. Who would get finished quickest? Ben Askren fighting like Wonder Boy, Luke Rockhold fighting like Derek Lewis, or Roy Nelson fighting like Michael Pereira? I don't think Roy Nelson can fight like that. I don't think he's capable of doing that. I think he'd finish himself before anything. Luke Rockle will get chin-checked hard. Like, if he goes out there and starts swinging at someone, haymakers and stuff, yeah, he's going to get put out pretty quick. Ben Askren, like Wonder Boy, I think he might roll his ankle or something like that. So I'll say Roy and Ben Askren finish themselves, and then Luke Rockle just gets KO'd by anybody. Cody Garbrandt fighting like Cody Garbrandt should be one. And then we go to Nova. Now, the whole thing about the questions, for some reason in the community tab, they're not ordered by likes. So I'm just going to go through it and see which one I think has the most likes. So we go to Nova. Thoughts on the word casual. It seems to get thrown around a lot when it shouldn't. What do you think constitutes a casual versus a hardcore fan? Yeah, it gets thrown around a lot. It's a loaded word. It's something that the hardcore fans call the uneducated or anybody that they're arguing with. They're going to call them a casual to undermine their intelligence of the sport. Right, they don't know as much. Casuals don't know as much as hardcore fans. Yeah, usually when someone calls someone a casual, it's not correct. But it's just an insult, just like anything else. Stupid, right? Dumb. Smooth brain. You know, if you call someone a smooth brain, they're usually not being for real because that's an actual condition. And being able to differentiate who is a casual and who is a hardcore is a pretty opinionated topic. It's pretty hard to actually know for sure. 
and usually I guess just comes by face value. People who only watch Conor McGregor, people who only watch the big stars, people who only watch the main events. Those are the people that most likely are casual fans. And if there is someone who watches every single UFC card and every single fight from start to finish, they are most likely a hardcore fan. So those are like the complete opposite of the spectrum. And somewhere in the middle, it gets more gray and hard to determine because there are some people who only watch the main card, but they'll watch every single main card. Will you say that they're a hardcore or a casual at that point? And there are people who will say anybody who started watching since Conor McGregor's debut in the UFC is a casual fan. Now, I don't agree with that one. That's that's thrown around a lot. Anybody who started watching because of Conor McGregor is a casual. I don't agree with that, to be honest, because everybody has to start watching MMA at some point. Right, I started watching MMA in like really in 2006, 2005, but I wasn't like a big time fan at that point. But people who've been watching since the 90s will call me a casual, you know what I'm saying? So, because I didn't watch Vitor Belfort's debut in the UFC or something like that. The guy that really made me a big fan of the sport was Anderson Silva. So, people who were watching Evans Hanner and Tito Ortiz and were big time fans then will call me a casual. So I will go on and say, if you started watching because of Conor McGregor, you are not a casual by default. It really depends how much you watch, how much you're involved in the sport and whatever it is. Even if you started watching because of Henry Cejudo or Zhang Wei Li, you know, it doesn't mean you're a casual. Then we go to John Wayne LSD25. Hey Weasel, my question for the podcast is, what is the most high-paced five-round fight showcase in the UFC? Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, man. So Mighty Mouse versus John Dotson had a very quick three rounds. Usman versus Colby was pretty quick. Yoana versus Rose Namajunas. Zhang Wei Li versus Yoana is definitely up there. Lawler versus Condit's up there. Lawler versus McDonald 2 is up there. Hendricks versus Lawler 1. People forget about that. That was a really high-paced fight. If I were to say the fastest paced fight might actually be Whaley versus Ioana. I don't know by the stats. I have to look at the numbers, but it just feels like it was. Maybe because of recency bias. But it was a it was a crazy fight. It was a quick, powerful, nonstop, action-packed fight. Yeah, Tony versus RDA was a high pace. That's the craziest one because, again, it was in Mexico City. And they were like power punching the entire time. And then we go to Paul Youngblood. Will Max Holloway ever be champ again? He is still young. And then what are the chances Valentina beats Nunez if they fight again? Neither has competition in their respective divisions. Thanks, man. Holloway champ again? It's probable. You know, it's not out of the question. To be honest, actually, no. Because I think he's going to go up to 155 in the next few years. And can he be Volkanovski? Probably not. If Zabit becomes champion by some chance, Holloway does have a better chance of doing it. Ortega there as well. But Green Zombie's a hard guy to fight. And Volkanovski's a hard guy to fight. Yeah, Rodriguez is going to be a good fight. You know, Zabit should be interesting. I'll say no. I'll go with a no. And then Valentina's chances against Nunez... She has probably the highest chance out of anybody in the UFC. You know, they had two close fights. A lot of people thought Valentina won the second one. But it looked like Nunes started to pick out holes in Valentina's game. Or not holes, but strengthen her advantages with her power size, reach, and distance management. The distance management was the biggest factor for Nunes. It wasn't so much in the first fight. Second fight, it was hard for Valentina to catch Nunes with anything powerful. She was always falling short. And Valentina could not counterpunch Nunes because Nunes didn't engage that much. She just kept her reach and tried to get Valentina to fall into something. So I'll say Nunez wins a third fight, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't really matter for Valentina. She doesn't have to be Nunez. She's way smaller, like so much smaller. I think Valentina can make 115. I really think so. She's not that big. Even for 125, there's 125ers much bigger than her. Nico Montano's big. Caitlin Jugagian's big, really big. Valentina walks around, I think, 135. That's the same walk around weight as Joanna Jacek. And then we go to the Stats Life Productions. If you had to be quarantined with any UFC fighter past or present for one whole week, who would it be and why? Oh, Rachel Ostevich, really easy, and I don't really have to say why. That'd probably be my honest answer. Or even Valentina Shevchenko, because she seems fun as well. Shooting guns and whatever, doing all that stuff. That'd probably be a fun time. This guy goes, yo, Romero. I hope he kisses me and tells me he loves me. Jared, you are one freaky guy. And then we go to SN Madmood. Will we ever actually get Tony versus Habib? Also, how high are the chances a meteor hits when it's booked the sixth time? I say around 72%. Yeah, sounds about right. You know, they say if an apocalypse happens, it's like something that cannot be predicted. Booking Tony versus Habib is a way to find out. The first four cancellations were kind of warnings, you know what I'm saying? They were just warnings like, hey, don't put this fight back together or else. 
We put our fifth time. Huge global pandemic. It's not playtime anymore, man. We probably shouldn't have this fight ever booked again. Just for the Earth's sake, you know? But I do think it's gonna happen. I just like to think so. And that might actually be the problem here. I think we're a little bit too optimistic the fight's gonna happen. There was too much optimism, and it kind of played against us. So let's all think it'll never happen. Could we actually trick the MMA gods? And then we go to Jesse Griffin. Jill Sun has said that the Luke Rockwell that beat Wyman was the best 185er he's ever seen. What particular fighter in a particular fight is the best fighter you've ever seen at each weight class? At heavyweight, it was definitely Fedor. When Fedor fought uh, Mirko Krokop, and especially when he fought Nogueira, I forgot which one it was because they fought three times. The one where he was bashing his head in from the guard. That Fedor looked unstoppable. He was the best fighter I've ever seen at that point. Light heavyweight is definitely John Jones, the one that fought um, Vitor Belfort. When he destroyed Vitor, it was like, yeah, I don't see anybody beating this guy. He got caught in a fully extended armbar, still got out of it, outpowered the guy who was on TRT. That was like the first cycle of TRT Vitor. Instead of eras, Vitor has cycles. Yeah, when he tore that guy apart, or even when he fought Shogun Hua, you know, he looked unstoppable there too. Middleweight was definitely Anderson Silva versus Yushin Okami. Or even Anderson versus Forrest Griffin, but that was a light heavyweight. When he destroyed Yushin Okami the second time, he came out with different styles. He fought a boxing style, karate style, Muay Thai style. He just did everything in that fight. Just to prove a point because he lost to the guy by DQ before. So he has something to prove there. That was an angry Anderson Silva. At welterweight, it was definitely George St. Pierre when he fought John Fitch and when he fought Jake Shields. And those were two very credible opponents at the time. Right, Jake Shields in his prime was known as one of the best welterweights on the planet. When you look at every welterweight's prime, Jake Shields is definitely top five. And GSP ragged all that guy. 155, maybe when Habib beat Edson Barboza or when he beat Conor McGregor, it was like, yeah, there's probably nobody beating this guy. Benson Henderson, when he destroyed Nate Diaz, Bendo looked really strong at that point. And there is also when Anthony Pettis defeated uh, Gilbert Melendez. That was the point where everybody thought that Pettis was established. He was going to be the next big thing. At 145, probably Conor McGregor. Probably when he defeated Jose Aldo, you know. It did seem at that point like nobody was going to be Conor. Jose Aldo defeating Ryan Faber in WEC. And Max Holloway defeating Jose Aldo the second time. Those were the best 145ers I've ever seen. And 135, it's easy. Cody Garbrandt versus Dominic Cruz. Cody Garbrandt, if he still fights like that today, I feel like nobody can beat him. 125 is definitely Demetrius Johnson defeating John Dodson the second time. Mainly because of how the first fight went. Right into the second fight, DJ completely dominated the entire fight. First fight was close. Right, DJ got dropped three times in the first two rounds. Goes into the second fight, completely dominates that same guy. And also his fight against uh, Ali Bagotinov and his fight against Ray Borg. You know, he had a lot of performances that made you think he was the best fighter of all time. Women's 145 was definitely Amanda Nunes defeating Chris Cyborg. 135, to me personally, I'll say Amanda Nunes when she defeated Sarah McMahon. Because at that point, it seemed like to me that nobody was going to be Amanda Nunes. It was just a matter of time before she became the champion. But when you actually look at performances, he has her Ronda Rousey win, her Misha Tate win, Holly Holm win. There's a lot of fights you can look at. 125, Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica I. Plain and simple. And 115 was when Joanna destroyed Carla Esparza. To this day, I've never seen a performance like that in the 150-pound division. Go back and watch that. That made me an instant fan of Ioana. And then we go to Sarcastic Genius. Weasel, let's pretend UFC is opening up a 165 pound weight class and there's an eight man tournament to determine the division's first champion. You're the organizer of that tournament. Which eight fighters are you choosing for this tournament? Colby Covington, Habib, Tony Ferguson, Jorge Masvidal, Wonderboy, Rafa Dos Anjos, Gilbert Burns, and Conor McGregor, I guess, right? That'd be a wicked tournament, man. You got to admit that. Who would win? I think in the finale, it'll be Habib versus Colby Covington. Tony might be up there, but Tony versus Colby will be a really hard fight for Tony. It'd be a really tough one for him because Colby can keep up with Tony the entire fight. And his wrestling might be a little bit dominant. Now, Tony can catch a submission. He can catch a guillotine, Dar's choke. So it's an iffy fight. On paper, Colby probably has an advantage. And because of that, I would probably see Habib versus Colby at the end. And the 165-pound weight class will be shallow. Yeah, right. That'd probably be the most stacked division in the UFC. People asking for Usman and Woodley, they're too big. I think they'll fight 175, or if they keep 170. And then we go to Lamb Sauce. Do you think the concept of punching power is exaggerated? While you have guys like Francis and Rumble, 
I think any UFC fighter would be able to land a devastating blow in the right circumstance. Also, how do you see these matchups? Poirier vs. Gaethje 2, Prime Tyson vs. current elite heavyweight boxers, Zhang vs. Rose. I agree, in MMA, anybody could pretty much knock out anyone. Now, of course, there is a widespread quantity of punching power. So you have guys like Dominic Cruz, who's going to have a very hard time knocking people out. And then you have guys like John Lineker, who can go and touch anybody once and they go night-night. So there is punching power, of course. And even with Dominic Cruz's example, again, he knocked out Takei Mizugaki in a minute. So anybody can knock out anybody with the right kind of punches and the right kind of attacks. It isn't so much like boxing where it becomes harder to deliver that power because they are bigger gloves and less methods of setting up the opponent to get tagged because it's just punching and there's more rules to it. And with the added on padding, it becomes a lot easier to see who actually hits harder as the base damage for everybody is lower. You know what I'm saying? That's why if you see anybody in boxing knocking people out with one punch, like Deontay Wilder, their power is absolutely out of this world, while most boxers are not really knocking each other out with one punch. In MMA, you see a lot more one-punch knockouts. And also, I want to talk about punching power, because punching power is a misconstrued term. Punching power is just a simple way to put it whenever you see someone deliver knockouts, right? There's a lot more factors involved that gets a lot more complex. It makes things a bit iffy, you know, because it might not actually be their power. It could be their precision. It could be their timing. It can be the angles of their punches, you know, because the chin aspect, also people talk about chin. Sometimes it's not just chin, it's just how you get hit. It goes hand in hand with punching power. The whole chin factor is a very complex topic as well. I've covered it before with my how does a knockout happen video. There's many factors involved rather than just punching power. Now, with guys like Nganu and Rumble, you can just see no matter how they hit someone, no matter where they hit them, they just knock them out. And the way they throw their punches, you can just see from the speed of their punches, the leverage and the force and everything. You can just see they have legitimate power. Same thing with Justin Gaethje, same thing with Tyron Woodley, Yuval Romero. There's guys that you can just see it. You can just see their power no matter how they hit their opponent. It usually just stuns them, rocks them, or knocks them out. But then you have guys like Anderson Silva. Was Anderson powerful? No, I wouldn't say powerful. I would say he was very accurate and he had some of the best timing ever I've ever seen out of any combat athlete. He knew when to hit you and he knew how to hit you and his sniping precision was unlike anybody I've ever seen before. The only guy that has somewhere around the neighborhood of Anderson's precision is Conor McGregor and I don't even think he matches up to Anderson. Even Anderson 40 plus years old able to liver kick Daniel Cormier unlike anybody's ever done before able to fly knee Michael Bisping the way he did able to go after Adesanya and catch him with a few shots, right? Which a lot of people can't do. So there's a whole different argument, many different factors involved when it comes to the quote-unquote punching power. It's just a simple way to say it. Same thing with say, you know, someone has a good chin or whatever it is. And Poirier versus Gaethje 2, I'll go with Poirier, but I do think it's a much closer fight with Gaethje's newfound method of fighting than Mike Tyson versus the current elite heavyweight boxers. He doesn't do that well against the top, top guys. Now, I think he smashes a lot of those number 15 to 7 or whatever they are. Maybe even up to 5, but Tyson Fury's a nightmare for the guy. Just the height. The guy's nearly a foot taller than Tyson. And he has, what, a 14-inch reach advantage? That is crazy. That is unlike anybody Tyson's ever fought up against before. Yes, he fought Frank Bruno, and he fought Lennox Lewis, you know, big guys. But they don't even compare to the attributes of Tyson Fury. And the thing is, Fury has much better cardio than Tyson. He can actually hurt Tyson. Tyson had a decent chin, but when he started to wither away as the rounds went on, he was much easier to catch and knock out. And also, Tyson had a very hard time with big guys who clinched up with him. Tyson liked to get in, but he came in head first a lot. And that allows a lot of people to grab over him, the taller guys to grab over him and tie him up and then reset the action. That's going to really tire out Tyson, who's much smaller, weighs probably 70 pounds less, 60 pounds less than the guy. It's just going to play a huge factor. The size, the attributes is going to be a big thing. The physicality, big thing. That's not even talking about the technical aspect of it. Tyson Fury might even be more technical than Tyson. Tyson's a lot more flashy with things. He has more of a spectacular style that people can just note and see and they won't forget it. But the detailed intricates of the fight, Tyson Fury is a lot more complex. His movements in general. Tyson, he moved well, but nowhere near the kind of footwork 
that Tyson Fury brings. The thing about Mike Tyson's head movement is it was a lot of big movements, a lot of big head movements, side to side, under punches, and all that stuff. It was very flashy. While Tyson Fury, yes, he has that weird baiting head movement going on, but when he's actually slipping punches, he slips just outside of it. Very small movements to get away or toward you past the punches. But the thing is, when Tyson actually is able to make those big head movements and slip your punch, he's creating a lot of momentum back. When he rocks back from that big head movement, there's power coming with him. And that is why he's able to land those hooks and uppercuts on these guys. And they always land devastatingly because he has that momentum going with his head movement and his trunk movement. But no, I don't see him being Tyson Fury at all. The big question is, can he be Deontay Wilder? Yes, he can, but he can also get knocked out because again, those big head movements. The thing about Deontay Wilder is if he gets down your head movement and he knows where your head is actually going because of patterns, you're knocked out. You're going to get KO'd. It happened to Luis Ortiz. Look what happened to Luis Ortiz. You've got to eliminate the jab. If you eliminate the jab, the right hand's easy to see coming. Tyson doesn't normally do that. Tyson evades jabs by big head movements, and you can't do that. You can't do that against Deontay Wilder. Now, if he's able to get in close before he gets caught by that big right hand, yes, he could deliver some power. But again, the height advantage, the reach advantage, and the wide stance, it's very unorthodox, something that Tyson has never fought up against before. Deontay Wilder could potentially get away easier by just moving backwards, that linear path. Deontay Wilder doesn't move laterally at all. He moves very good linearly. And if you're coming on that straight line with head movements on the sides, you're actually not moving laterally. And that's going to put you at a big disadvantage when you're fighting a guy like Deontay Wilder. You want to get off the center line completely. You don't want to be anywhere near it. You want to actually move your feet side to side away, which Tyson can do, but he didn't rely on that too much. But, ah, man, I would have to say Deontay Wilder wins. I would have to say. He's much more powerful. He has a very fast right straight. He has that probing jab. And if you move your head, if he's probing his lead hand on you like he did to Luis Ortiz, and Luis Ortiz stopped deflecting it, stopped pairing it, and stopped eliminating it and started moving his head, instantly when he started moving his head, Deontay Wilder calculated it, landed the right hand on him. The instant it happened. If that probing lead hand is on Tyson as he's moving his head, he's going to get caught. 100% he's going to get caught. And that's what tells me that Deontay Wilder probably win. And then there's Anthony Joshua. If Anthony Joshua fights prime Mike Tyson, that's a very doable fight for Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson is going to be a harder fight for Joshua than Andy Ruiz was, right? He pretty much schooled Ruiz throughout the entire fight. When I say schooled, he like won every single round without much difficulty. So Tyson brings a very similar style to Andy Ruiz, the same stature, but a lot faster movements. And he has that level of aggression that Andy Ruiz needed. So yes, Tyson can absolutely knock out Anthony Joshua. Would I bank on it? Who would I bet on? You know what? I'll go with Mike Tyson on that one. I see Anthony Joshua winning the rounds behind his jab and moving away, being very elusive. But I think he eventually falls into one of those hooks as Tyson pressures him to the ropes. And that's pretty much the end of it. And the Ruiz versus Tyson would be a great fight. That'd be a great fight, man. Ruiz has a good chin, but... I think Tyson's a little bit better of a boxer. He's more technical. Very similar power. Very similar speed. Similar chins. I think Ruiz gets caught and TKO'd. And then the last one, Zhang versus Rose. I'll go Zhang Weili on that one. I think your infighting is a little too strong. And then we go to Charlie Brown. If Habib versus Tony does not happen this year, would you consider Tony too old, aka not in his prime anymore? Do you think Volkan Uzdemir could take the light heavyweight belt in a rematch with Dominic Reyes if Reyes beats Jones in the rematch? It's hard to say about Tony being out of his prime. He's like, what, 35 reaching 36? He hasn't been slowing down yet, but this is the age you usually see it. And there's very few lightweights that are able to compete at this level while being in their mid-30s. Heavyweight, it's like your newborn baby at this age. We're in uncharted territories here with Tony Ferguson, as we usually are with him. And I do not think Uzdemir beats Reyes. I actually think Reyes convincingly beats Uzdemir in a rematch. He just did not expect the wrestling. That's all it was. Dealt with the striking fairly well, even though Uzdemir is a pretty good striker, so I'd still see competitiveness in the striking, but I don't see Uzdemir taking down Reyes at all. And then we go to Dan TR10. Jorgen said in a recent podcast that he would pay a ton of money to see a prime BJ Penn vs. Habib. Do you actually think BJ stands a chance or is it just nostalgia bias? 100, let me say this closer, 100% nostalgia. That fight should never be sanctioned ever. BJ Penn was good for his day. He was good when Diego Sanchez was a threat. When he was like one of the top guys in the division. When Kenny Florian was the guy in the division. The lightweight division was extremely shallow when BJ Penn was on top. And yes, he did go and defeat Matt Hughes, which was a very good stylistic matchup for him. 
and he did almost beat a very young GSP. But in the rematch, you know, GSP absolutely tore him apart, which just showed GSP's progression. And he went on to fight Lyoto Machida in an open weight fight. It wasn't necessarily heavyweight. I know Jorgen says that, but it was actually an open weight fight where BJ Penn weighed less than 200 pounds, you know. And he did very well, won the first round. So BJ Penn was very good for his day. But it's just nostalgia. Yeah, he had great performances. And yes, he was a madman. He was so fun to watch. I will say this. I don't see BJ Penn even winning 30 seconds against Habib. Anywhere. Count from 1 to 30, 2 minutes to 2 minutes to 30 seconds. Whatever 30 second interval you want to take, BJ Penn will never win any part of that fight. Even the stand-up will be tough for BJ Penn at some points. Because BJ Penn rarely kicked, rarely moved, very plodding, rarely through knees or elbows. And he's much smaller. Habib is much more powerful. Habib is very fast to explode. He throws flying knees and crazy stuff that BJ Penn hasn't really had to come across that much at a higher level. Especially against someone who can threaten the takedown. And yes, Penn had great takedown defense. But he's not going to stop anything Habib's going to throw at him. It's just never going to happen. If Frankie Edgar can get down BJ Penn even one time, which is actually a better wrestling style for BJ Penn to compete up against and defend, Khabib is going to take him down and completely dominate the ground game. And then we'll go to Shadow the First. Who wins? Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. Now I can finally talk about it. I do think Tony Ferguson would win, even under full training camps. His pressure is a little bit too much. He has far better cardio. Yes, he might get tagged here and there, but I covered the gist of it, but... I don't think Justin Gage is going to be able to attack when he's getting pressured back, right? His hook counters are a little bit too short and a little bit too obvious, especially when he starts shelling up, which he will do. Tony's going to pressure him back, put the output on him. He has a major reach advantage and stick on the outside, right? Stick away from those power shots. And he's very good at rolling with punches in general. So it would be a tough fight for Justin Gage. It really would. I think he'll get torn apart as the fight plays out. Izzy versus GSP. I'll have to go with Izzy. He's a little bit too big, better striker overall, very good takedown defense and very active off his back and very good cardio. I think GSP has his hands full on the feet, man. Wonder Boy versus Leon Edwards. I'll go with Wonder Boy. I think he's just overall a better striker. Connor versus Poirier at 170. I'll go with Connor, even though Poirier's chin should be better there. I'll go with Connor. I think his style is just a little bit hard for Poirier to uh, take advantage of. Usman versus Colby, too. Gotta go with Usman, man. The power advantage is something that's not gonna change. That was the difference. It was such an even fight on the feet. Only thing that Colby can really do is just change his approach change a few things technically but he's always gonna fall into that power man he's always gonna have to face that and then you continue also let me get a face reveal right now this second no excuses just put the camera to your face and put it on the podcast also wouldn't mind seeing you shadow box i have a really good pc now which i can actually do it because i actually ran some tests before and my old pc couldn't handle it and shadow boxing yeah i'll probably put up some things because there's really nothing else to do so i might do stuff with my brother maybe show that out there maybe I have an instagram account I'll actually make an instagram and i could put stuff like that on there lastly what do you think about yemeni fighters like prince nasim hamid or saddam ali i feel like they will dominate in mma it's just that no one knows about the sport over there in yemen yeah i don't know either i'll take a look over there because i really haven't heard of anything in yemen so i'll be on the lookout they would have janakan chandra kumar how do the recent performances of Kevin Lee and Johnny Walker affect the reputation of Ross and TriStar? There's definitely going to be a little bit of criticism. I think it's more going to be on the fighters than for Ross, but if you really look at it, for Ross hasn't generated a lot of great fighters. There's some good ones. Obviously, GSP, Roy McDonald, a few of the other Canadians, but those are only the real big two that made it far, you know? I don't know what it is. It might be a mentality. It might be a fighting style that Faraz works with really well. I think Kevin Lee has a good style that Faraz can work with, but I think it's Kevin Lee's mentality, man. I just think there's something going on in his head that just doesn't allow it to happen. Look when he fought Charles Oliveira. Third round came in. I think it was third or second. And he actually was having success. Actually landing. He was actually being aggressive and letting his hands go and it was working. But he got too antsy, man. He got too excited. And just like Kevin Lee, his entire career, when things are working well, he just messes it up. He just lets it go. It just gets too crazy and out of control. He went for that takedown, got caught with the guillotine. And then Johnny Walker, I don't know what to say about Walker, man. His offense is good. His defense is really lacking, more than just lacking. He's a piece of raw material, and he needs more time. That's why I think about these two. They need more time. Yes, they just got beat. Walker for the second time. I think we got to give him more time. They're young guys. Kevin Lee, not so much anymore. He's fought a lot of people. But Johnny Walker in MMA, not a lot of experience, and he's very raw. Then we got the bossy. Which technique skills would you like the following fighters to add to their game? For Max Holloway, Cody Garbrandt, Kevin Lee, Dominic Cruz, and Darren Till. It's hard to say for Max Holloway. He does everything very, very well. I would like to see Max Holloway kick a little bit more. He's falling in love with boxing a little bit too much. 
and he's not letting his legs go like he used to. I think focus a little bit more on kicks because he's a very long fighter. Here's the other thing. Max Holloway has very short arms, 69 inch reach, narrow shoulders, and short arms. And his reach is less than Volkanovski by like three inches. You gotta let your kicks go more, man. He has very long legs. You gotta utilize that to keep distance as well and also measure for your boxing and angles. Cody Garbrandt, he's so good, man. His skills are not the problem. He fights like he's a brawler and he's not. He doesn't have the body built to brawl. Cody's mentality is that of a brawler, but his body's not built to brawl. So it's a conflicting factor here that he has to fix. But as for what skill and technique he should use, I think he should wrestle more, to be honest. I think he should go for takedowns more because his wrestling look really good against Dominic Cruz. I mean, to take down Cruz even one time is an accomplishment. The guy did it multiple times with very little experience in MMA and wrestling. And that will actually get him out of this brawling mentality as well. I would say wrestle a lot more. Kevin Lee, use the jab more. A lot more. And let the hands go a little bit more. You know, the jab is going to be a very utilized weapon, just like GSP. Step in with that jab. Use that wrestling explosion. Step in that jab and move out. You have a very long reach. Dominic Cruz, very hard to say. More distance management because he likes to get in close a little bit too much. I think Cruz is too technical. <laughs> That's what I think. I think he's too skilled. He gets out of his way sometimes. And then Darren Till. Now, Till is way more one-dimensional than the other guys here. But sometimes that works. Look at Conor McGregor, right? Conor's not the most multi-dimensional, well-rounded fighter you've ever seen before. He's very similar to a Darren Till. So it can work, absolutely, with that left side focus. But with him, he needs head movement. And then your next question, pretty much, who do I get nervous about when they're in a dangerous moment in a fight? and I want them to win. Nobody really. I don't have that kind of bias to any fighter. No, that's actually not true. When BJ Penn fought Frankie Edgar, and especially when BJ Penn fought Gary Rodriguez, those are hard. I really wanted him to just make it out of their safe, and he didn't. You know, thanks for the top content, Weasel. Thank you so much for the questions. Then we'll go to James Eddington. What would your game plan be for Andraja versus Nama Yunus if you were in each of their corners for the rematch? And then which fighter would you pick to be your quarantine buddy? Keep up the great work, man. We're all lonely, aren't we? I should have got a girlfriend before this happened. Uh, well, I will say is Andrade should leg kick more. Take away some of the movements. Pressure the entire fight, obviously. She's probably going to outpace Nami Yunus. First two rounds are going to be dicey for Andrade, no matter what. Nami Yunus slows down as she gets pressured. So keep pressure. A lot of leg kicks. You can go and do your usual means of dipping right, left hook to get close to Nami Yunus and start infighting with her. And always go for the single leg. Keep going to that because it worked before. I don't know what Nami Yunus is going to do differently, but it seemed like that was a game plan for her against the high crotch. And then what should Nami Yunus do? Distance management, but keep your ground. One twos, jabs, left hook counter, same thing that she was doing before. Knees in the clinch, going Muay Thai in the clinch, right? If Andrade is going for the leg, get that Muay Thai plum, man. Tuck in those elbows a bit and try to get Andrade's head up and start throwing those knees up, you know, because she likes to go in for the legs. Never get on the cage. That's the number one thing, actually. Major focus, never get on the cage. If you get past those black lines, you move up because Andrade does not cut off opponents. Her footwork is very one-dimensional. She follows people around. She did the same thing to Nami Yunus before. Followed Nami Yunus, but the problem Nami Yunus had then was she was moving backwards in a straight line. Move backwards straight line, but once you feel you're getting closer to the cage, you want to circle out immediately. And that should be something in the training camp that I would do if I was the head coach. I would drill it the entire training camp. Every single day we work on that. Back up rows, and whenever she gets past the black lines, tell her you got to move out. You got to move out. Look where you are. That's going to be the big thing there. If she can get away from the cage, she's safe from the fight. She has many advantages over Andrade. Then we go to GG. Conor versus Zabit in a two-round fight. I'll say Zabit, for sure. Zabit's more technical, very good boxer, very hard to hit, taller than Connor, longer as well, faster in many areas, not the same kind of power, obviously, but if it's two rounds, he doesn't have to be that powerful, just outpoint Connor the entire time. Head kick's gonna be a problem, light kicks especially, and those takedowns. Those takedowns are really quick, man. It's just so hard to beat Zabit in two rounds. It's so hard. The guy is too technical and he's too fresh. He's too fast. He's too tall. He's too long. If someone goes and beats Zabit in two rounds, or let's say gets the better of him in two rounds, I salute you, man. Like, that's a huge accomplishment. Dude, it's also a high-level fight. Zabit versus Josie Aldo in two rounds. That would be wild as well. Then we go to Jesse Griffin. Which fighter has improved more than any other since their UFC debut to today? Max Holloway, probably. When he started off, he wasn't even like a prospect. He lost several fights early in his UFC career, but he was also very young. He was like 20 years old, if I'm not wrong. He was a striker, and he didn't even have like a gym or a coach or anything. He was actually learning. He said this. He was learning by playing the UFC video game. Look at him now. He's so technical. He's so skilled. This is nowhere near 
the guy that fought Conor McGregor or Dustin Poirier the first time. Very different fighter. His ground game back then was non-existent. If you took the guy down then, he was pretty much helpless. Now... Good luck taking him down, and if you do, you have to evade those chokes like your life depends on it. Like with a Brian W, would you rather go 10 minutes with Nganu in the cage, or him go 10 minutes in bed with your girl? I don't have a girl, so that leaves me with one option, doesn't it? Looks like I'm gonna have to plan a hospital visit. Reservations to a hospital. Hey, are you guys gonna be booked on uh, Sunday morning? Then let's go to the Twitter questions. We're gonna start with at Treadstone. If Habib takes down Tony in the middle of the octagon, who will it favor? Habib's usual cage tactics won't work, while Tony can effectively deploy his BJJ or try standing up. While Habib is really good, he isn't like GSP who can ground and pound anywhere. Actually, wait. Habib ground and pounds in more areas than GSP does. GSP usually just ground and pounds from the guard. Although he does ground and pound, you know, everywhere. Habib literally ground and pounds everywhere. In your guard, half guard, side control, crucifix, gets your back. Everywhere where it goes on the ground, Habib lands those Donkey Kong hammer fists on you. But regarding Tony, I know what you're saying. Habib does his best work on the ground and even standing when he has the opponent up against the cage. And usually when he gets opponents down in the center, yes, he can still transition, he can get your back, he can do a lot of things, still land ground upon shots like he's done before. But he usually likes to push you up against the cage. He likes to lift you up. Usually when the opponent's trying to get up, he's able to maneuver around them and gradually get the fight closer to the cage during this whole scramble. And then he pins you down again and now works his magic. The thing about Tony Ferguson is, he doesn't try to force a stand-up. He likes to attack, and he likes to use the rubber guard. He attacks from a high guard. It's very hard to move that guy, right? Because his legs are wrapped up above you, on top of your shoulder, on top of your head, the upper back. Unless you're lifting him up and putting him to the cage, the scramble is usually not moving anywhere. And that allows for Tony Ferguson to land some elbows and stuff like that. And the center of the cage is definitely going to be a lot more competitive, and even could give Tony some opportunities to land or sink in something or at least threaten Habib but even there I think Habib is too high of a level I think Habib is a higher level than Tony Ferguson as we've seen before Kevin Lee got into Mount Danny Castillo back in the day also kind of dominated on top and those guys don't even compare anything to what Habib is able to do when it goes on the ground when the fight hits the mat Kevin Lee has nothing compared to Habib absolutely nothing nothing is on Habib's level same thing with Danny Castillo and here's another thing. Habib likes to stack on top of you, likes to stand above you, land ground upon shots, all that stuff. And that can create some distance away from Tony Ferguson's elbows and some of his chokes. And from that, some people might think that Tony Ferguson would just stand up or he would attempt to. But Tony Ferguson thinks differently. He has a different mentality than your usual fighter. Instead of trying to stand up and evade the whole ground game, which is actually what Habib wants you to do. As you stand up when he's standing above you, he already has ground above you, right? He can already attack from this if you try to stand up. What he does is he grabs your ankle and lifts it above your head as you're trying to stand up and that just pushes you back. What Tony is probably going to do is attack the leg, right? The guy's leg is already extended and it's right there for the taking. Tony might roll over and go for it. And that puts Habib in a very weird position, very weird. But I do think it ultimately does favor Habib. Look at Ad Katanivs? I don't know how to pronounce that. Hey Weasel, do you remember the time everything was shut down because of some plague and Uncle Dana bought an island to have fighters on it like Enter the Dragon? Love your work, many thanks, and good health salute. Same to you, man. I like the fighting island idea, to be honest. It's like something out of the 70s, you know, 80s movies. Like Enter the Dragon, yeah. If I don't see someone missing a hand, like the final boss of everything, you gotta fight him at the end, I will not be happy. Or if it's like Shao Kahn or something. And then the last question at Johnny Machiavelli. Is Ali the best manager in the game right now? Habib falls out and his other client gets the fight. Yeah, he's the best. Whatever you have to say about Ali Abdelaziz, he's obviously the best manager in MMA. He has like 50 fighters, whatever it is, like 50 UFC fighters. He gets all of them fights. They all make money. If I'm a fighter and I want to be with any management, I'll want, I would want to be with Ali Abdelaziz. He does everything for his fighters. Gets them what they want, and he's very close to Dana White. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next video.